Welcome to COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno, presenting information from various sources about the COVID-19 pandemic from public health policy and cultural perspectives. We will be sharing international accounts from policy, public health response, and even personal experiences firsthand about living in this era of COVID-19. So you probably are aware by now that we use Anchor.fm here on this podcast for COVID-19 PPC. And I wanted to tell you about Anchor.fm because this is actually the second uh, podcast hosting software I've used. And um, I really like it. I love how easy it is to use. I love the fact that it's free. And they have so many tools here like music and all these different options that help you record and edit your podcast either from your phone or your PC or your computer. And then Anchor distributes your podcast for you so that it can be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And then also you can even make money from your podcast with minimum, with no minimum listenership. And it's all you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're new to podcasting and you're interested in um, getting started, I recommend Anchor.fm. So what you can do is download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started. Um, that's my recommendation. And, um, you know, after almost a year of podcasting, I'm really glad I found Anchor just recently. It just makes things so much easier. And uh, yeah, come check out Anchor.fm. Welcome to this episode of COVID-19 PPC. I hope you're doing well. Hope you're taking those protective measures out there as we continue to open things up in different parts of the United States. Even though the cases are continuing to emerge and rise, we have not seen a decrease in our cases yet. We've seen definite reductions in the peak so that we've been able to flatten some of this curve due to the shutdowns of various businesses and the push for us to stay home. So that's been good news, hearing the fact that we have at least been able to provide that capacity in clinics so that even some clinics, unfortunately, are so not busy at the moment. And even people with for special health care, specialty care, surgeries, are not feeling safe enough to be out there yet to actually take care of other underlying conditions and other pre-existing conditions at the time. I'm not really willing to be out there at the clinics right now unless it would be completely necessary. And at this time, I think a lot of people have delayed their surgeries, procedures. Today, we are talking about this theme continuing the last episode on this theme of health equity, which is actually a theme that we talk a lot about in this podcast, something that I really am focused on. I spend a lot of time talking about health equity and working to counteract health disparities and to prevent health disparities in everyday life. And so today we're going to continue that conversation about reducing health disparities and in the context of public health in Texas. And this is a great opportunity for you to understand what contact tracing is. What is it? How does it help agencies? How does it help healthcare organizations? How does it help public health? And how does it help patients? We're also going to be able to hear about the cultural competency aspect of this. So it's really unfortunate. And it's, of course, not surprising. It's just frustrating. The fact that we're seeing a lot of Latinx patients being given disrespectful treatment in testing. We've seen 
disproportionate numbers of Latinx, Hispanic patients being disproportionately affected by this virus. People who are dying, people who have been required to go to work are often from the Latinx community, the farm workers, a lot of the cleaning industry, the people who work in food service, especially in California and other states. This is your population. If you go to any restaurant, your population is going to be Latinx who work in the food services industry. So a lot of the people who are essential are from this community. And so in this episode, we've had the opportunity to speak to someone who works in contact tracing. So she'll be able to tell us, she's telling us what contact tracing is, what that process looks like, and how she works on this procedure to communicate with the Latinx Hispanic community, Spanish-speaking community that she serves at her public health agency. So I really love the culture that she's talking about in this public health agency that she works at. Every agency is so different. And she does mention the fact that a lot of people are not familiar with the fact that there's a public health agency in their area. So in some locations, you have a city public health agency. For example, in California, there is a San Francisco city public health agency. In Long Beach and Pasadena, there is a city public health agency. For the most part, they're county level. So we've got L.A. County. Um, San Francisco County, which is actually linked to San Francisco City Public Health. We've got all these different county agencies. We've got San Diego. Uh, we've got Orange County, Riverside, different agencies. San Bernardino Public Health, which is actually linked. Riverside Public Health is actually linked to UC Riverside, which is pretty innovative, in my opinion. Pretty cool. So that's the landscape here in California. Different agencies have different approaches. Some are very innovative. So there's, uh, I think it's Marion County in Indiana. I give them special credit. Very innovative, very focused on health IT, informatics, and being very proactive. The Inland Empire is also really good with a lot of their work, Riverside and San Bernardino counties, very connected to innovative approaches to improving public health. Every agency is different. Some are very, I would say they really care about the people they serve. And that's the priority. Others are a little more fear-based, unfortunately, and they care more about what certain people are um, going to say to attack them, unfortunately. And so every culture is a little different. Some of them are very health equity focused. Some of them still don't even know what the heck health equity is. In public health, for the most part, as a discipline, as a training piece as something that some people actually work in public health have not had that public health background may have gone straight from medical school and that is not the same thing a lot of mds after their md or simultaneous to their md will go and take public health as a master's program so you may see an md phd or sorry an md mph in many of your physician titles so in many cases, they've done the MPH after the MD or simultaneously. So just because someone has an MD doesn't necessarily mean that they're familiar with the principles of public health. And then likewise, a lot of people that work in public health agencies may not have had that familiarity with the discipline and the practice and the subject of public health. And unfortunately, that is the case when we think about health equity in some situations. So today... I love that she's going to be talking about these examples of how she serves the Latinx Spanish-speaking population in Texas. This is Gabriela Calvi and how she also has a podcast that she feels driven to do to help the Spanish-speaking community 
to understand the concepts of healthcare and how to be their own self-advocate. These are things that I am very into, very passionate about. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, so she also does mention really quickly that she sees that people have this lack of information. We saw this similar in the um, episode working with the Navajo population, working in Gallup, New Mexico, where there was this information gap because of the lack of news, access to resources, access to information, sometimes no internet, sometimes no electricity. Uh, in this context, we're looking at the Hispanic, Spanish-speaking Latinx population in terms of not having access to the lingo of healthcare in many cases, the technical jargon of the medical industry, of the healthcare field, and then also sensationalist news. So news is out there. You can find news on the television about healthcare, but oftentimes it's opinionated, it's speculation-based, and it's divisive in a lot of cases, right? So it inspires anger. It in Some people, it inspires fear. And it's not necessarily information. There's not a whole lot of information on the news about best practices and guidelines. That's something that you would need to find out from online. These government healthcare agencies, your local public health agency, your state or your national agency, CDC, and even the WHO, the World Health Organization. So we get into all of that in this episode. I love being able to talk to another public health individual. I'm also very passionate about public health as she is, health equity, and navigating this season of how we can proactively get through this season of COVID-19. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to this episode of COVID-19 PPC. I hope you're doing well. Hope you're taking those protective measures out there as we continue to open things up in different parts of the United States. Even though the cases are continuing to emerge and rise, we have not seen a decrease in our cases yet. We've seen definite reductions in the peak so that we've been able to flatten some of this curve due to the shutdowns of various businesses and the push for us to stay home. So that's been good news, hearing the fact that we have at least been able to provide that capacity in clinics so that even some clinics, unfortunately, are so not busy at the moment. And even people with for special health care, specialty care, surgeries, are not feeling safe enough to be out there yet to actually take care of other underlying conditions and other pre-existing conditions at the time. I'm not really willing to be out there at the clinics right now, unless it would be completely necessary. And at this time, I think a lot of people have delayed their surgeries, procedures. Today, we are talking about this theme, continuing the last episode on this theme of health equity, which is actually a theme that we talk a lot about in this podcast, something that I 
really I'm focused on, I spend a lot of time talking about health equity and working to counteract health disparities and to prevent health disparities in everyday life. And so today we're going to continue that conversation about reducing health disparities and in the context of public health in Texas. And this is a great opportunity for you to understand what contact tracing is. What is it? How does it help agencies? How does it help healthcare organizations? How does it help public health? And how does it help patients? You're also going to be able to hear about the cultural competency aspect of this. So it's really unfortunate. And it's, of course, not surprising. It's just frustrating. The fact that we're seeing a lot of Latinx patients being given disrespectful treatment in testing. We've seen disproportionate numbers of Latinx, Hispanic patients being disproportionately affected by this virus. People who are dying, people who have been required to go to work are often from the Latinx community, the farm workers, a lot of the cleaning industry, the people who work in food service, especially in California and other states. This is your population. If you go to any restaurant, your population is going to be Latinx who work in the food services industry. So a lot of the people who are essential are from this community. And so in this episode, we've had the opportunity to speak to someone who works in contact tracing. So she'll be able to tell us, she's telling us what contact tracing is, what that process looks like, and how she works on this procedure to communicate with the Latinx Hispanic community, Spanish speaking community that she serves at her public health agency. So I really love the culture that she's talking about in this public health agency that she works at. Every agency is so different. And she does mention the fact that a lot of people are not familiar with the fact that there's a public health agency in their area. So in some locations, you have a city public health agency. For example, in California, there is a San Francisco city public health agency. In Long Beach and Pasadena, there is a city public health agency. For the most part, they're county level. So we've got LA County, um, San Francisco County, which is actually linked to San Francisco City Public Health. We've got all these different county agencies. We've got San Diego. Uh, we've got Orange County, Riverside, different agencies. San Bernardino Public Health, which is actually linked. Riverside Public Health is actually linked to UC Riverside, which is pretty innovative, in my opinion. Pretty cool. So that's the landscape here in California. Different agencies have different approaches. Some are very innovative. So there's, uh, I think it's Marion County in Indiana. I give them special credit. Very innovative, very focused on health IT, informatics, and being very proactive. The Inland Empire is also really good with a lot of their work, Riverside and San Bernardino counties, very connected to innovative approaches to improving public health. Every agency is different. Some are very, I would say they really care about the people they serve. And that's the priority. Others are a little more fear-based, unfortunately, and they care more about what certain people are um, going to say to attack them, unfortunately. And so every culture is a little different. Some of them are very health equity focused. Some of them still don't even know what the heck health equity is. In public health, for the most part, as a discipline, as a training piece, as something that some people actually work in public health, have not had that public health background, may have gone straight from medical school. And that is not the same thing. A lot of MDs after their MD or simultaneous to their MD will go and take public health as a master's program. 
So you may see an MD, PhD, or sorry, an MD, MPH in many of your physician titles. So in many cases, they've done the MPH after the MD or simultaneously. So just because someone has an MD doesn't necessarily mean that they're familiar with the principles of public health. And then likewise, a lot of people that work in public health agencies may not have had that familiarity with the discipline and the practice and the subject of public health. And unfortunately, that is the case when we think about health equity in some situations. So today, I love that she's going to be talking about these examples of how she serves the Latinx Spanish speaking population in Texas. This is Gabriela Calvi and how she also has a podcast that she feels driven to do to help the Spanish speaking community to understand the concepts of healthcare and how to be their own self-advocate. These are things that I am very into, very passionate about. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, so she also does mention really quickly that she sees that people have this lack of information. We saw this similar in the um, episode working with the Navajo population, working in Gallup, New Mexico, where there was this information gap because of the lack of news, access to resources, access to information, sometimes no internet, sometimes no electricity. Uh, in this context, we're looking at the Hispanic, Spanish-speaking, Latinx population in terms of not having access to the lingo of healthcare in many cases, the technical jargon of the medical industry, of the healthcare field, and then also sensationalist news. So news is out there. You can find news on the television about healthcare, but oftentimes it's opinionated, it's speculation-based, and it's divisive in a lot of cases, right? So it inspires anger. It in some people it inspires fear, and it's not necessarily information. There's not a whole lot of information on the news about best practices and guidelines. That's something that you would need to find out from online. These government healthcare agencies, your local public health agency, your state or your national agency, CDC. And even the WHO, the World Health Organization. So we get into all of that in this episode. I love being able to talk to another public health individual. I'm also very passionate about public health as she is, health equity, and navigating this season of how we can proactively get through this season of COVID-19. And Gabriela did want me to make it known that policies are continuing to change on a daily basis. So the procedures that she's describing here for contact tracing and the requirements for restrictions, the quarantine data, the amount of time, all of this information, the level of the awareness of the risk of contagion, these policies are continuing to change on a daily basis. So uh, she did want me to make that clear. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for being here today for this episode of COVID-19 PPC as we continue on this theme of social justice and health equity, even in public health during this time, this season of COVID-19. And today I am really excited to speak to my special guest today for our podcast. This is Gabriela Calvi. She is located in Texas. She's a health educator and she works in health promotion. She also is a podcaster of Buenos Dias Salud. So I'm really excited to have her here to talk to us about what contact tracing is and how public health is serving 
diverse populations, bilingual populations, Spanish-speaking populations in the state of Texas. So thank you so much, Gabby, for being here today. Thank you so much, April. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. Please tell us a little bit more about your work. I'm so excited to have you here to talk about public health and COVID-19. Tell us about you, your work, and even your podcast. It will be my pleasure to do so. I'm Gabriela Calvi, and I love public health. I have an with an emphasis on health promotion and education. And basically what that means is I help organizations, public health departments to design, assess the health of the community so we can implement a program. So say, for instance, like I did on one of my volunteer internship was the, for a health department, I design and implement women's health education program. So what that means is I look at the health belief model and then I say, okay, what is it that is stopping the Spanish population, these ladies, to get their pap smear, to get breast exam, the, the mammogram, to get their vaccination? And I look at the barriers and then I create a health program and then I teach the group of ladies, in this case it was the Spanish population, and so I taught them what to look for when, for a doctor, how to find a doctor, questions that they can ask when they go to their first doctor's appointment, and I really took them and navigate, helped them navigate and explain to them what does this visit looks like. So I went and showed pictures of, you know, this is what the step-by-step of a you're getting a pap smear because a lot of women don't know exactly what a pap smear is. And so I focus a lot on health literacy. That's my biggest issue because as a medical professionals and even in the public health profession, we tend to talk with big language, like jargon, that's what we call it, be scientific terminology where the minority population, they don't understand that. It goes like over the head. So that's my focus of the health education promos that I created, designed, targeting the health literacy. And because of that program that I helped design for this particular public health department, I got this light bulb turned on me and I said, well, you have a gift and that gift is being a bilingual. You know, Spanish is my first language. And the best way for me to help the public the population, specifically the Spanish population, is by speaking Spanish. Taught myself speaking Spanish, but the public health, you know, with those terminologies, you know, what is health literacy, you know, what is X. I can't think right now, but, you know, it just changed the, the way that I was thinking constantly in English about public health and how I can bring that knowledge to the population in a very simple term. And that's where my podcast came about. Like, okay. I am going to do a podcast 100% in Spanish where I speak to my Hispanic community about very diverse health issues and where I explain to them in very simple terms, but at the same time, I give them simple steps, action steps, what I will call it, so they can start implementing, you know, little habits. They can start implementing changes in their life. That's a little bit in a nutshell about me. Being able to communicate and use your gifts of bilingual skills to help various populations, even the Spanish-speaking population, with very easily implementable skills, small tips and advice that can be used 
easily. So it's not so intimidating to make those huge health changes, right? So building up that self-efficacy is great to hear. Absolutely. Yes. And that's what I constantly talk in my podcast, in my community, and even social media. You know, it is better to be proactive than being reactive. So what that means is, okay, even though I do not have cancer, that doesn't mean I am not going to learn about cervical cancer. I need to know the signs, the symptoms. I need to know how to find a doctor. I need to know what does it look like if I need to go into chemotherapy or other health interventions. So be proactive means find out about a particular issue that interests you. Doesn't mean if you have it or not, but be aware that when the time comes, hopefully no, you already know how to act. So there's one particular example I gave to my community was here in Texas, we have a lot of uh, tornadoes. So we are taught to have a 72-hour kit to hide under the stairs or go, if you live in a two-story house, to go downstairs, to lock yourself in the bathroom or inside a closet. So those are proactive steps, actions. So when you hear the alarm, the sirens, going on when the tornado is underway or kind of close by, you know what to do. So it's the same with a illness. So if you are having chest pain and your arm is kind of numb, those are the signs, you know, having some type of cardiovascular disease, like a stroke. And so you know what to do. I give that example. It's better to be proactive than being reactive. Like if you know there's something's wrong with you and you don't know, what is happening, you're going to freak out. How many times something happens, like many years ago when I, you know, first time mom, and then my son fell down and had a huge cut in his head. He had to have stitches, 10 staples, but he was bleeding so much. But if I knew what to do to apply the first aid at that moment, I would add it as a proactive action instead of being a reactive. I don't know if that makes sense. It's like, I Think of like react is me like you're freaking out that you don't know you can think your mind is blank. And of course, it's the flight and fight action. We will have it because that's nature. But at least you have a little bit of knowledge mm-hmm. of what to do. So I'm slowly giving that preaching to my, to my choir or to my community about being proactive instead of being reactive. Yes. Being proactive so that you know information, you have information that you need for yourself and also for your family and your community to be able to have those tools available and that knowledge. Can you tell us the story about how, as an employee in public health, you were hired to work with women's health, it sounds like. And so that was your regular task. Your everyday work is going to be related to women's health. However, with COVID-19, all of that sounds like it began to change. And the work that they are having you do now is different than that. Very different. Yes, it changed Yeah, dramatically, mm-hmm. super fast. And it's been hard to adjust, but at the same time, I'm loving it because I'm the type of person I love to learn. I'm like a sponge soaking all the knowledge. And I'm, I am the type of person that asks questions. I don't, I don't mind asking questions. And when I ask questions, they're not like, there's no wrong or right question, or I would say my way of critical thinking. You are ready. You are uh, <laughs> you the right frame of mind and the proactive capability to be able to switch into this new role of helping out as contact tracer. Yes, especially being bilingual because we've been noticing that 
the beginning or up to now, we have a lot more patients that are positive with COVID-19 in the Spanish population than, say, for example, white Caucasian or black, at least here in Texas. I was the only Spanish-speaking. Well, there was another epidemiology, but he's higher than me. So as far as level, you know, rank, he had another responsibility. He's the supervisor. And so he couldn't concentrate too much in contact tracing. So he told me, hey, Gabby, guess what? I just overloaded with work. You are going to be the primary person doing the Spanish contact tracing. I'm like, oh, great. Uh, What is it? (laughs) Like in school, I knew what it was a little bit, but I never had the opportunity to apply it to that's a great opportunity it was a great opportunity yeah Yeah. and I just listened to one conversation that he did and then he kind of gave me the rears okay go ahead you're on your own like what no can you listen to me no I trust you and so that was really meaningful to me that a team member and that's important thing when we are working in public health like your team are strong you you back up each other and in public health we collaborate because we have stakeholders. And so we need to be, everyone's have to put a good effort to make, because we are, we're not only serving ourselves, we are serving the community. We're serving whether uh, state level, local, here in my county in Dallas, metropolis area is super, super big. And the Dallas County Public Health Department is one of the biggest, I think it's the second biggest in within the um, Texas area. Houston, I believe, is the number one uh, biggest uh, public health department. So we have a lot of people that are coming to our area, even the people that were not in our county, and we have to keep telling them, you have to contact your county. So anyway, so yeah, I I got into uh, being the contact tracer and bilingual taking all those phone calls. Tell us a little bit more about what contact tracing is and what that process is like for you. Basically, I get the report from a patient as the report from the hospital. It could be an emergency department. So by state, the doctors are mandated to report any communicable disease. Okay. And so we get that report and then I call the patient and then I say I tell them you know hi my name is Gabriela I'm calling from the county health department and I the investigator do have a few minutes to talk it seems like you were recently at the doctor for some medical health issues so I'm right there I confirm that I'm talking to the right person so I ask them you know what's your date of birth so I don't disclose any private information with the wrong person. So I have to confirm that I'm talking to the right person. So after I do that, I first question I ask, when do you, the symptoms onset? But when I ask that question, they might not understand. So I basically ask them really clear, simple, when do you start showing symptoms? And so they will tell me and they will go from there. And what were your symptoms? Where were you? Were you at work? Were you at home? Were you at the store? And then I'll ask them, if you were at work, who were with you? The same if they were at the store. And we go from there day by day. I would try to dig in and trying to remind them because most of them, they don't, re- they don't remember what they did the day before or days. Sometimes I get patients that they have COVID last month. Like for example, today I call several patients and I'm like, I don't remember. So I have to read the medical record. I say, oh, okay, well, it seems here that you were at the hospital this day. So can you remember what you did 
before. And so they kind of tell me, oh, yeah, I went to fiesta. Oh, yeah, I went to work for a little bit, but then I came home because I was feeling sick. So I give them a little clue. If they cannot remember what the day, I before I call them, I have to read the medical record and see the day they told the doctor when they were showing symptoms. And then after I go for them, so I go like a few days and then we go back because from the symptom onset, it has 14 days we have to go. Mm-hmm. And then I have to go 14 days before the symptoms started. Okay, what do you do bef- the day before you start sick? Where were you? Who were with you? You know, who you hang out with? Do you travel? Where do you travel? Do you travel by car, by bus, by airplane? And if they did by airplane, I have to get their airline, which seat, their SAT, their flight, inf- all the flight information. Wow. The same with the bus. I have a few patients that they went to Mexico by bus, so I have to get the bus company, where they sat, all the information, because and then we have to contact the organization, whether the airline or the bus, we have to even contact their work and ask them, okay, well, your employee was with so-and-so and they, your employee tested positive. So keep track. So we have to kind of, yeah, trace everyone and track. Yeah. And so that's 14 days before the symptoms started. So how and much then, information do people actually remember when you call? Not somebody? very much. <laughs> you will be surprised. Some remember pretty well if I start giving them hints. Like, for example, okay, well, it seems here in the medical records you went to the hospital April 2nd. And so they start remembering, oh, yeah, it was three, four days. And some have some type of record where, I don't know, some went like to the pharmacy. Oh, yeah, I went to the pharmacy that day, but I don't know. Let me see. And so they have like receipt. They look in the phone. Some people have it, some information on the phone. I ask them, anything that you have in your phone, mark as a calendar, can you look? So a lot of them have receipts of stores that they went to and they can tell me. So after I trace, I take note of the places that they were and who they were with. And at age, if they were family members, I asked them where they work and if they work alone, because some people work alone, some people work as a team. So I asked those questions. And if they work as a team, how close were you? Like there's a, a dentist office that I called them and there was like several ladies in the dentist office. I have to interview every one of them, but they were not six. They were no close contact as far as like, they were more than six feet apart. So that was very helpful. So people that work together, I asked them, were you more than six feet apart? Say yes. Where you have your own office or you are in that cubicle. Then, yeah, we, are, we have our own office. I'm like, okay, good. So I didn't have to worry too much. Uh, so basically you have to contact every facility that they've gone to. So if they've gone to the store, they've gone yeah. to an office, a doctor's office. Do you need to personally contact each coworker? Well, at the beginning we were contacting each person, but it was getting so overwhelming with all the cases that we receiving and we're still receiving a lot of cases. So we decided not to contact every single person because it was too much. We didn't have the manpower. We even, our department have to hire volunteers, uh, medical students that were in finishing their fourth year of medical school to be our volunteer contact tracers because we didn't have the manpower. Even though we have a big health department, the epidemiology, uh, uh, well, acute communicable disease departments, we are only five epidemiologists, but each of them has their own assignment. So we didn't have the manpower to take care of the cases. We were having like 90 cases a day. And so we, we decided to contact only the high risk people, which means like if you are, so let's, for example, you are the case, the positive case, you know, you have COVID-19. 
I contact you and then I will give you the guidelines. It's your responsibility to let your work know and to let your coworkers or whoever you were in contact with. And then we send in an email with all the information that they need to give, like a letter with a protocol that they have to share with their friends or their coworker. But if you were working at a factory or a supermarket, anything related to food, agriculture, infrastructure, or like a, uh, on a healthcare facility, yes, we will have to contact your work, your employer, and, and let them know that you tested positive so they can shut down and sanitize the area, the workplace. So after I give all that information, contact all the contacts and the places, I then give them the protocol of how they need to take care of themselves. So I tell them, okay, at the beginning, we were telling patients they have to be a isolation for 14 days, but Texas law of the state, it changed it, I don't know how long, but the beginning, when I say beginning, it was like early February. We were telling patients 14 days, they have to stay. But then I think it changed it in middle of February, March, I can't remember. Now the positive case only have to be in isolation for seven days. But in order for the patient to discontinue isolation, they have to meet three requirements. Number one is they have to be no showing symptoms, especially fever. Have to be no showing signs of fever for three days, meaning 72 hours. They should not be taking medication to relieve fever for 72 hours. And they cannot have any symptoms. Cough. There was like patient, well, I, I still have a little bit like a scratchy throat, kind of itchy. I cough once in a while. Well, that once in a while is still counts. So no. So we tell them, okay, after the seven day, you reassess yourself. And then, okay, how am I feeling? Am I improving? Am I no improving? Is my cough getting better? Is my throat getting better? And then if not, you give yourself three extra dates after the seven days if, if your symptoms are not improving. And so we tell the patient, you evaluate yourself every three days. It ended up going, if the patient doesn't get better, ended up going to 14 days. There are other patients that they get really well within four or five days. And so they have to meet those three requirements. So only seven days. However, say for example, you have a, your husband and your kids, they are at home and you're the positive case. Your direct contact, which means your husband and your kids, they have to be in isolation for 14 days. So the direct contact of the contact, they have to be 14 days. How about those situations I've heard of where people look like they're improving and then suddenly all of a sudden it like drastically dips and then they get so much worse? Yeah, because they have underlying health conditions. That could be anywhere from asthma, cardiovascular disease, immunosuppressed, kidney failure, you know, renal disease, also patients that epilepsy. I have seen that also as well, obesity and diabetes. So, so can you tell us a little bit about the disparities, unusual trends that are really in terms of health disparity that's particularly affecting the Hispanic or Latino population? I think mainly was the how they assess communication because all the interviews that I have done is they do not check the CDC website or they don't know who organization. All they see, they find out the information is through the news. And it could be good, it could be bad, mm -hmm. <laughs> but they don't always say the most reliable 
information to the public. Mm -hmm. They, the news gives the audience, make them more scared than anything. So mm -hmm. they freak out and they start thinking about things that doesn't really make sense. I don't know how <laughs> to, but you know, when I'm talking to patients, like the news says so this and this, like, um, no, that is not true. I, I cannot on top of my head what exactly, you know, those comments, but that's one of the things is like the Spanish population don't know how to access the most reliable information. That's one of the health disparity. Another one is access to medical health. We have drive-through, like FEMA is one of the government's government agencies. They are offering drive-throughs, meaning yeah, the testing center. Mm -hmm. Some of them can be pretty rough. I have a patient that I interviewed on Monday and she did not want to talk to me. I said, what's going on? I'm here to help you. I want to listen to you. I'm not judging you. I just want to give you information. I don't trust you. Who are you calling? But she thought that I was calling from one of the person from the drive-thru because they treat me really bad. They were giving me, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. But all I, I got on in line again is because I want to let them know that they got my phone number wrong but they were not understanding me. So I feel so bad. So I had to tell her, okay, listen, okay, even though, you know, this organization is part of the public health department and we're collaborating with them, but I don't work for them. <laughs> so I'm telling like, they send us the specimens. We don't, public health department doesn't take specimens or see patients. We only take the specimens and we have a lab and we run the specimens in. We get the results. And so I have to explain all to that, that I was here only to interview, to help her out, to see how she's doing. And she was still at the, at the ICU. She was still hospitalized. So those, I think those are one of the main health disparities that I have noticed is access to medical information and competent care, culturally competent care. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because a lot of them also have to go to the hospital and I see in the medical records that they have interpreters and some of them also don't know how to advocate for themselves. Like the doctors will say, well, they are poor historians. So we need to learn. So that's, I think one of the things that I would talk to my community in my podcast is how you can build historians of, of your help. And one of the things that I talk a lot of my pocket is how to talk to a doctor, what questions. And since day one in my podcast, I tell my audience to have a notebook specifically for health, for your history. To say like, this is your journal, but this is your health journal. In there, you're going to write down who is going to advocate for you mm -hmm. in the moment that you don't have the ability to do so. Is it going to be your husband? Is it going to be your wife or your mother, your father, your brother, whatever? You need to write it down in there in the notebook. Mm -hmm. You need to write down all the medications that you're taking in your notebook. Mm -hmm. You have to write down all the side effects. You have to write down all the procedures. Yeah, procedures as far as surgery, hospitalizations. Oh. You have to write down like who in your family has diabetes? Who oh. in your family have cancer? So I tell them my audience to have a specific, and I would tell them to your audience to have a, a specific notebook that's about your health. Because in there you can relate, go back, because we are humans. I mean, we cannot remember every single detail. But if we have something that we can look back as a history, and then that shows to your doctor, wow, this person is really competent, knows how to you know, self-advocate. And then when you know that you're going to a doctor, write down those questions. And then... At the time you go to the doctor and say, okay, these are my questions. You show the doctor your notebook. So how many times, I mean, I will raise my hands before I started public health. It's like, I will go to the doctor. And I'm like, oh yeah, I supposed to ask my doctor, but I forgot to ask them about this. Like, oh man, I have to wait, you know, another appointment or well, I have to call him later. 
you know, I mean, I'm sure we all been there, but if we have a notebook where we can write everything and then show, because when we're showing interest about health to a doctor, they show interest like, oh, okay, this person is pretty, pretty well off. They want to learn. And like, it's the same when you are having a diagnosed, okay, you need to ask it, okay, why do you think you're diagnosed with X condition? And that makes the doctor kind of think more like, oh, okay kind of double think himself or herself to make sure if he's giving the right diagnosis to the person. So that's episode, I think number five, I recommend everyone to, to listen to it, Very but it's, good. it's really good. So, yeah. um, so that's one of the things that I tell my patient and then I teach them how to take care of themselves. Like I teach them, it's really important. There's a big difference between cleaning and disinfecting. Cleaning is when you use soap and water, with a, a rag and you clean what is the dirt. Disinfecting is when you use bleach or you use alcohol, dilute it with water. Not the alcohol, but the bleach. And so you disinfect, okay? Every time that they go to the bathroom, they have to disinfect the bathroom, especially if they share the bathroom with the rest of the family. Say, for example, you go to the bathroom, you finish using it, your family member cannot use it until you disinfect the bathroom. Even if you just went to wash your hands, doesn't mm-hmm. matter. You have to disinfect every single thing that your hands touch. And they have to have their separate plate, cup, silverware. They have to wash it separately with hot and soap and water. They need to change their bedding, preferably every day. But if they cannot do it every day, every other day to wash it in hot water. So I teach them they have to take it really carefully. This is the time that we take abruptly the bedding. Sometimes we see particles flying in the air, especially if this, we see the reflection of light heating. We can see like the dust in the air. So I tell my patients that they have to take it off really carefully with their glove and the face mask, put it in the back and put it in the laundry room and wash it right away. Because if you sleep with the same bedding dirty, I mean, you're not going to get better very soon because <laughs> you're sleeping in a already contaminated bedding. I give them also instructions on how to disinfect the rest so they have to be separated in the room there's some families i feel bad where they only have one bedroom one bathroom so in that condition we know that okay it doesn't matter the mom has it everyone else is gonna get it and that eventually happened but i still give them the information that how to properly clean and disinfect their home and their personal belongings so they can get better assume and i always give them my phone number so they can call me mm-hmm. directly to my my desk and you know i ask them questions before they hang up okay is there anything else i can do for you do you have any questions i have one patient because he called me like five times. He's such a sweetheart. But he would ask me questions. Okay, I think I'm getting better. And so he would ask me question after question. But, you know, I cannot go in detail because private information. But it was so sweet of him that he took that initiative to call me a couple times and let me know how he was doing. Let me know, you know, if the bed that he was, you know, even though he cleaned it, disinfected it was still safe for him if he could go out in the living room Mm -hmm. after, you know, he 14 days. So those things are are really neat. And I either have, you kind of, you have to listen non-judgmentally, put yourself in the shoe of the patient, especially um, if you are trying to help them understand the issue. There's patients tell me, well, did I really, really have it? The doctor said I have it, but I don't believe it. Like, so I have to kind of, 
not convinced about persuading me in simple terms that yes, this is happening and then I go back, okay, remember that you have this symptom, remember how you felt, where did you go? Did you have contact with someone? Oh yeah, this person was sneezing or coughing. Mm -hmm. So I start connecting the puzzle, the pieces of the puzzle, okay? Mm And so they can make sense. So like, oh, yeah, I didn't know. There's patients. Well, it's only a sneeze and a cough that I had. I thought it was just something minor. Okay, so then now, from now on, you know that you have a cough or a sneeze. It's not something minor. You have to stay home. Even, just think about it, April. Like, before we were, before COVID-19 came, you know, we have what the cold and the flu. How many times people show up at work or at school or church or any community event, they're sneezing or coughing. Mm-hmm. And you know they're contagious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because the first day, and this is something that people need to, I tell in my patients, like the first day that you start showing symptoms, you are the most contagious. You are the most contagious person. Mm-hmm. And the incubation period is like seven to 14 days before you start showing symptoms because that's when you contact the, the virus. So I told them, okay, for now on, you stay home. Don't go to work, but I have to work. I understand you have to go to work, but try and like unleash and then put a face back on you next time or you go to work, but you have to tell your boss, look, these are the conditions or it is really hard. But and then I have other patients that they call me, hey, Gabby, thank you so much for helping me out, for supporting me. And this patient, her, her father passed away. And then for this patient to take the time, because letting me know that, thanking me, like I'm praying for you. Thank you so much for you doing that. Like an, it melted my heart. That's what I want to say. It melted my heart. And then have you had these situations where you've had to actually call somebody? I don't know what circumstance it would require, but somebody who actually has no symptoms, but they tested positive. Have you had to have conversations with people like that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Because the, like I said, hospitals or emergency department, they report that to us. And so we say, okay, it's positive, but no symptoms. So we have to let them know that they have to stay, still need to stay at home and follow the same procedures, even though they are asymptomatic. Yeah. No showing symptoms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. There's one patient today that I contacted her. She got sick first and then her husband, her kid, but her husband and herself, they don't work. They are retired, but they still have two kids at home. They're young. They're like one is in college and one is in middle school. You're showing symptoms this day. What did you do before? Well, I only went to Walmart and Fiesta. When was the last day your daughter went to school this day? Did you pick her up? Did she ride the bus? No, I pick her up. That must mean that probably your daughter has it, mm-hmm. but she's asymptomatic. She's not showing symptoms. And she didn't. I'm like, Really? Oh, I didn't thought about that. Yeah, because that was the only person that she had contact with and it aligns with the dates. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like we were counting, like the mathematician, like counting the days. Yeah. Okay, this is the only person that you have. So it must be your daughter because she just came out from school mm-hmm. uh, from spring break. So yeah, it does. It does happen. Have you heard the results of people? How about people who have gone to the supermarket? They have their gear on, they have their mask and everything. The local supermarket. I think you mentioned Fiesta. Is that a, a local supermarket? Yes, the, the Hispanic uh-huh, uh-huh. supermarket. Are people doing well in terms of protecting themselves from after going to the supermarket or go, while they're in the store? Some patients, yes. Some patients, no. This lady, she didn't have protective gear because it was early in March. And at that time, we didn't have that guideline 
of having protective gear, the other patients that they have protective gear and they still got sick. But we have to remember like having protective gear is not going to protect us from getting sick. The mask protect us, protect the person who is sick not to spread it, to get the other one sick. However, but if we have, everyone have protecting gear and then we have the herd immunity, it's like vaccinations, like you vaccinate everyone, we are protected for the most part or the amount of person getting sick is lower than not having the protecting gear. But yeah, and this virus is new, so we still a lot to learn. I mean, every day we're having conference call from CDC or from the State Department or from, you name it, like this week, it was last week, it was with the the White House and the big chief uh, medical medical director. Mm -hmm. Because it's changing constantly. Mm -hmm. Like last, yesterday, FEMA was not testing employers that were asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. That was yesterday. Mm-hmm. But then today they sent a, a notification saying, okay, now we're testing employers that are asymptomatic. I'm like, okay. okay, so I'm like, it's so hard because they keep changing. So you have to keep Amazing. up with so many things that they are coming up with. Wow. And it's really hard. So you're talking to patients, you have to have all, basically all your, even though there are some things you haven't memorized already because of repetition and constantly happening but there are other things that are constantly changing that you have to have your computer on and with different windows open with all the guidelines open because mm-hmm. you don't want to miss any information to tell the patient because it changes it constantly changes you cannot believe so that's i think one of the most stressful part about the job is to keep up with the information yeah not to mention the number of hours you're working now as a contact tracer can you tell us about on average how many hours a week you're working now uh 13 hours oh 13 hour days 13 hours a day yeah it is very tired (laughs) and are you seeing the peak of everything now are things finally are they starting to reduce in number of cases or is it still kind of up there it's still kind of up there yeah oh wow okay Yeah. One last thing I wanted to ask you is about information. So you mentioned that the Spanish speaking population has had some challenges finding accurate information. What kind of advice would you give to people who are in need of finding more information that they can trust in Spanish? CDC, even though it's the main, it's the most accurate, they have option there in in Spanish. So all you have to do is just click. A couple of days ago, I was talking to a patient. I directed them. If CDC is too complicated, I direct them also to your own public health department. And a lot of people like I were calling, you're calling from who? The public health department, the county public health department. They didn't know that we have a county mm. uh, health department. So I direct them to their website. And then I tell them, okay, right on the upper right corner, there's the tab that you can change the language, the setting. And we have everything explained there telling them who I tell them not to listen to news please please don't listen to news <laughs> don't don't listen to news <laughs> because it just keeps not even the wrong information but yeah I, I don't know how to explain it but yeah it's not accurate no it's not 100% accurate let's say it that way they they scare a lot more than help and then how are you taking care of yourself during this time it sounds like yeah you're working a lot of hours you're helping a lot of people you're hearing uh, firsthand, a lot of situations and circumstances where people are infected, they're they're sick. 
Um, how are you maintaining your self-care with all of this? Oh, wow. That's, that's a hard question. It was hard at the beginning, but I learned to, like today, I stop, I get up from my chair, and I did some yoga poses, just mm -hmm. stretching. I try to get up a lot. Instead of calling my coworkers by phone, I go literally get up and walk to their office. And then we have tapes um, by a door. Like we cannot go, you know, we cannot, we have our social distancing. So we have a marking in each of our doors in our office. Like I cannot pass through that tape. But for me, getting out of my desk and walking, it helps me release. I work on the fifth floor. <laughs> it sounds silly. You may say, well, really, Gabriela, this is self-care. <laughs> like I work, I have different self-care. Like my work, that's what I stretch in my office, do some yoga stretches, walking to the office of my coworkers so it can stretch, get my blood circulation. Sitting, it takes a toll on you. I go up and down <laughs> the stairs in my break. Yeah. So I try to remember, take my two 15-minute break. And it's, sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes I don't do it like yesterday. I noticed like, oh, I'm so hungry. Why I'm so hungry? And I look at the watch. I'm like, holy moly, it's two o'clock in the afternoon and I haven't had lunch. Mm -hmm. So it is that intense. Like we need to remember, I need to remember to be better at taking care of myself, like eating. But another way is when I get home, I decompress by doing a little bit of yoga. In the weekends, I love to run. Running is my passion. Mm -hmm. It's my stress reliever. I also bike. I love to listen to podcasts. So when I get off of work because it's late, one of the things that helps me decompress is to, I listen to this podcast. It's called Un Ratito Para Ti. It's a meditation and yoga all in Spanish. Mm -hmm. As I drive in, it suits me and kind of help me lower down. Like I'm on 10. When I get home, I'm level two. So I am ready to <laughs> go straight to bed because of the meditation time that I have just listening to the podcast um, help me uh, decompress. What would you like the world to know right now during this time of COVID-19 prevention, care? What message would you have for others? First of all, to believe that we are doing work. When I say we are working to make this better, it's like the officials, like with governments or in the public health departments and public health professionals, that we are doing our best that we can to help mitigate so the American can open up again. Just go and find the reliable information by going to CDC, WHO organization. If that's too hard for you, go and call your public health department. They are there for a reason to serve the community. So go give them a call. Our public health department has a phone bank and then we direct their call to the general public to the phone bank. Inform yourself with the right source instead of you just listening to the news. Just go to straight to the correct source which is the public health department and just be patient practice keep practicing good hygiene that's the most important thing and eat well and when i eat well you know eat i'm not saying about diet i'm saying just eat your fruits and vegetables eat your meat your fish eat wholesome food and exercising either you know it could be going up and down the stairs doing some leg kicks, but you sitting down in the chair, that's what's going to help you strengthen your immune system. 
this is really important. A lot of patients ask me, why contact tracing? Why are you asking me all these questions? And so I explain it and I want everyone to understand, please help the public health department to let you interview you because by me or anyone asking you questions about interrogation with the disease, it is helping us to understand how the virus works. It will help us to know what is working, what is not working, so we can report to the state, and then the state reports to CDC, and that's where they implement different community investigations and mitigations. If the public doesn't help us do the investigations, we won't have anything to, to work with to help the population so they can go back to their regular life. So please, 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 when you get a phone call from the public health department, pick it up, help them out with the most information that you can give them because it is super helpful. Thank you so much, Gabriela. I really appreciate that you came here today to the episode, to the podcast and provided this very important information. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pressure. Thank you so much for having me. enjoyed this episode if you have any questions any burning questions about COVID-19 feel free to send me a message in anchor anchor.fm slash COVID-19 PPC is our website and until next time stay well and take good care out there